Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. Hi, I'm Marion, and I get to tell you all about Lissa, the important things that you should know that she might not tell you herself. And first, I'm going to tell you how I met Lissa, which is that in 2012, I decided it would be a great idea to write a novel in 30 days. So I joined National Novel Writing Month, and Lissa was my municipal liaison. So I knew her first as a writer, and then later on as my very dear friend. And Lissa's personality is that she really enjoys helping people out, helping people solve their problems, finding information for people, and caring for people generally. But she has one terrible flaw, which is that she has never read all of the Harry Potter books, I think just through book four. Is that right, Lissa? Three or four. Three or four. I don't uh, even know. <laughs> <laughs> that's how bad this flaw is. I'm going to lean on you until you get them read. And that's uh, because, you know, it's important for cultural literacy. This is Lissa, and I am going to tell you about Marion. Uh, Marion came into my life as a writer, which is how actually all great people come into my life. And she is um, an asset to any group, but she's quiet like a ninja. And she sneaks in to support people in ways they didn't even know they needed to be supported. She's practical and lovely, and she loves The Great Gatsby. Um, maybe like more than anything, I'm not sure. It's but pretty close. Pretty close, right? Um, and uh, Marion and I don't read the same things all the time, but we like to talk about what we read. And when Marion said, I think we should um, see each other more and talk to each other more, and I think we should have a podcast, I said, oh, yeah, that sounds really, really fun. Please, let's do that. And so I'm excited that we're finally doing it. Yep, me too. Can't wait. So, Marion, how are we going to have a podcast about books? Are we just going to, like, do the things, or is there a plan? Well, I don't know that either one of us is the greatest at planning. As you know, as writers, we are both kind of um, pantsers, I guess, although I don't like that word. But we tend to jump in and see where the story takes us. So I imagine that will happen a lot here, too. What I think is going to happen is that when we both read the same book, which is something we'll have to make an effort to do, since as you noted, sometimes our tastes in books are a little variable. We can talk about that book and whether we liked it or didn't like it and how each of us from our very different viewpoints has approached that, since I like to think that reading a book is a conversation with that text. And if you're reading it right, you should be interacting with it. Also, I imagine we're going to be talking about other things we're reading that the other person might not have thought of trying or had time for and any uh, book-related news articles or thoughts we've had, and probably about what's going on in our writing lives as well, since I spend a lot of my time making up stuff and uh, 
I think that you are um, maybe the queen of National Novel Writing Month. I'm not sure, but you definitely high in nobility there. That is hilarious. I spend <laughs> a lot of time thinking that I will soon devote more time to writing. <laughs> it's like a hobby I have. And yeah. also building up a community to support me in the writing I plan to do. That's right. It's like well, my part know, of planning is planning to write. Planning to write. That's Not right. what to write, just planning to do the writing. <laughs> well, that's the fun part, isn't it? So there you it go. It really is. And, you know, um, Camp NaNoWriMo is coming up next month. In so, April. So then you should, pro- you're probably planning to write something right now. That's probably something you're doing is planning to write. I am planning to write. Not planning what I'll write, but like I'm doing InstaRimo on Instagram because then every day you think a little bit about a writing project that you Mm -hmm. plan to write. Yep. I'm planning to use that time to get away from my serious writing project and just have fun and relax into a story. You're going to write a new story? I am. (gasps) That's exciting. We hope so. We'll see. I'm, I'm thinking uh, that it's something I was going to write as a short story, but maybe it just wants to be a novel. So we'll see. That's the beauty, I think, of NaNoWriMo is that, like, for 30 days, you can just experiment with it. Yeah. And as we know, uh, it's, sometimes you find out that that thing that you made wasn't what you were into after all. Last November, my NaNoWriMo novel, as you know, Lissa, was a romance. Now, should Marion write a romance? I mean, I think we learned from that. <laughs> I think we learned the answer there is a big no. Marion should not write a romance. It was very difficult for me, and I have nothing but respect for romance writers. And I went to a romance genre con, and I think they're just the nicest people ever, maybe. With just, you know, everybody I met there was just terrific and so friendly and nice. And I thought, oh, I want to be with these people. They're so nice. I want to write romance novels. That was just an error on my part. I feel like romance novel writers are so nice, though, that you could still hang out with them. Oh, sure. They're very welcoming. I want to hang out with you and also write what I write. Right. And interestingly, in going to all the classes on how to write a romance novel, all of that information is applicable to my own genre, which is middle grade and YA fantasy, uh, with no alteration whatsoever. Writing is writing is writing. It's just the details that are, are different. I think, think of how much stronger your potential tiny romance subplots could be now. <laughs> a very tiny romance subplots. Very tiny. Your, very, really your minor characters who in the background off screen are having romance novels. They are. They are. They'll probably come in and just say, oh, I had such a romantic evening. And my other character will say, that's great. Let's go blow something up. Exactly. It'll be good. Your readers will be able to fill it all in because <laughs> of all the research and practice you've had. That's right. Well, I think for this first episode, we have read the same book intentionally. We have. We have. A book that I actually saw first and thought, oh, Lissa needs to read this. And then I ended up reading it myself as well. That's a good trick when you recommend books to other people. And they, the books like grab you also. Yeah, it is. So the book is Pretty in Punxsutawney by Lori Boyle Crompton, which is a... YA contemporary, would you say? Yeah. Yeah? I think so. Yeah, contemporary YA. It might be a romance, romance, actually. I think it is a romance. I do not... I think it can fit there. Yeah, yeah. You tend to read a lot more books like this than I do. So 
in some ways, I'm, I'm really curious about what you thought of it because you understand the structure and the tropes and the history and the general um, way that this genre works better than I do. I came in pretty cold to it in more than one way, actually, even including the plot line, which has some important stuff that I'm just not that familiar with. It was a, it, I would say it was like a quirky YA romance because the quirks kind of overwhelmed the plot sometimes. Um, sometimes in a YA romance, you just get the girl meets boy, whatever trope set up. And then, you know, the interesting details of the, you know, the dialogue or whatever's interesting about the characters or whatever's interesting about the subplots kind of make that book more unique. But this one very much, um, well, I think we have to tell you, this is a Groundhog Day meets Pretty in Pink mashup. That's right. About uh, the main character is Andy, whose parents have named her after the main character in Pretty in Pink. And she is a redhead like Molly Ringwald's character was in that movie. And she is crazy for movies, particularly vintage movies. Her mother sits with Andy and they watch all these old movies as part of almost like an education, a parenting tool, maybe, on her mother's part, how to teach Which, her child. I mean, I kind of thought was cool. Yeah, I did too. And so she's crazy about movies, and she's been hanging out all summer at the movie theater because she just moved to town, and she has a massive crush on this boy named Colton who works at the local movie theater with another boy who's she doesn't think much of. His name is Tom, and Tom is quirky and kind of nerdy. And, and Colton's Colton's boss. Colton. Tom is Colton's boss. Yeah, he is Colton's boss. Theater. And Colton is is a jock, you know. He's a good-looking, square-jawed jock. And so the book revolves around Andy's first day going to Punxsutawney High School, which is a total disaster on day one. And then the next morning when she wakes up, she gets to live it again. And she lives her this first day of high school, her junior year in this new school over and over and over again. Which is not a spoiler because we already told you this was a Groundhog Day meets Pretty in Pink mashup. Right. And that, and uh, there may be some spoilers, though. Eventually, we'll try to warn if things are going to be really spoilery. But I know that the end of the book is an issue for me, and I'm going to want to talk about it. Oh, no, I think we'll definitely have spoilers on okay. the book discussion portion of this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure we will. So... Overall, I know that I put it in my Goodreads and I gave it four stars because I did like the book very much. I laughed during this book, reading it from time to time, and I thought it was very, very charming and I enjoyed many, many aspects of it. Um, as I said, I had some issues with the end of the book, not ending the way that I wanted it to. That is always so tricky in books. And I was kind of wondering, and I know this seems crazy, but I was not living in the United States during the 1980s, and I did not see all these John Hughes films. They weren't as relevant to an international audience as they were to an American audience, I think, maybe. So I didn't see them, and I haven't watched them since, for the most part. I've seen Ferris Bueller, obviously, obviously. and I have seen... In the far distant mists of the past, The Breakfast Club, 
but I've never seen Pretty in Pink and I have never seen 16 Candles or any of the rest of those movies. Have you seen Groundhog Day? Oh, I've seen Groundhog Day, but that's not I've, John Hughes. I've never seen Groundhog what? Day. What? How is that even possible? <laughs> I was just, I was waiting to tell you. <laughs> well, you I... can put it in the Harry Potter pile. <laughs> what? What? Cultural literacy, Lisa. Of course, I'm one to talk. I've not seen all those Molly Ringwald 1980s movies, but uh, yes, I would recommend Groundhog Day to you as a movie, as it is pretty charming. I learned a lot about it from this book. I learned a lot about John Hughes films from this book. Um, although, I tell you, like, when Andy is talking about, when book Andy is talking about movie Andy's horrible, ugly pink prom dress, I went and Googled it right away. And I Googled and went on YouTube to look at the end of that movie to see how the movie ends. And I have to say, that was one ugly prom dress. She was not joking. When she said that that was ugly. I do not know really, what the costumers were thinking for that movie. They wanted it. Well, I don't know what they were thinking. But to me, it always seemed like they wanted it to be like, this is the best she could do. You think so? Did you see the I movie in the 1980s? Yeah. Did you think it was a pretty dress at the time? No. I mean, given that we were all suffering from some sort of uh, group delusion regarding hair and clothing during the 1980s and what looks good on a person and what does not. So I'm not judging you here if you thought it looked good. No, I think if you put that pink dress in context with everybody else at the prom, they're all really ugly. (laughs) (laughs) And the hair is really big, really, really Mm -hmm. big. With all the bangs. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's here. So, so yeah, that was, uh, I think it's a pretty good mashup. So one of us has seen Pretty Pink, and one of us has seen Groundhog Day, so that's good enough, I guess, as far as that goes. But in the movie Groundhog Day, Phil, who's the main character, he's not a nice fellow. He's kind of a jerk to everybody around him and very self-centered and shallow. And he has to live this day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again until he gets it right, until he grows as a person enough for whatever forces are causing him to live this life over and over and over again to find him improved enough, you know, to move forward. And I think that's kind of, that's the way I was reading this book for a long time is that Andy has to relive this first day of high school over and over and over again until she gets it right. Is that the way you were reading it? That's the way I was reading it. Um, and I didn't have, again, a really strong Groundhog Day reference to pin it on besides you do something over and over and it changes every time and you're not in control of it. Um, yes, yeah, so but it was never clear to me like what, what, which things she needed to experiment with. Yeah, that's, I think that that's kind of the crux of my problem with it. That she, I'm going to say some spoilery things, her initial thought of living this day over and over and over again is that she needs to live it right so that she can end up with Colton, end up as Colton's girlfriend at the end of the day is her goal. And Which is a solid goal at the beginning. It's a she solid really goal at the him. beginning. She does really like him. And one thing I liked about the book is that although she does not end up with Colton, right, he turns out not to be the guy, right guy for her. And he acts in some ways that she doesn't like cause her to realize he's not the right guy for her she forgives him and she doesn't hold it against him personally 
You know, she doesn't... Colton is not written to become an evil villain. You know, he's just a, a, a kid, a guy. She just kind not, of takes him off the pedestal yeah. and just leaves him at her level. Yeah, and I liked that. And I thought that was growth on Andy's part, that she is able to see this person as a more complete person. And that's kind of the arc she goes through with lots of people in the book, is seeing them more as complete people and real people as opposed to first impression people. I she, agree. Yeah. So, but, but I did have this problem with what is her perfect day supposed to be. She hangs out with the cheerleaders and works really hard for a long time to become really good at being a cheerleader and finds out that the cheerleaders are not shallow, bow-headed, sparkly creatures like she had supposed, but actually very kind and hardworking and loyal people. And civic-minded. Aren't they the civic? civic? They are the civic-minded ones. And then she hangs out with the goth people and finds out who are scary to her at first. You know, you want to stay away from those people and finds out that they are more than that, that they're good friends to each other. They're gentle people. They're artistic people. They're brave people and so forth. But I don't know that in the end that Andy becomes necessarily a much better person than she was on page one of that book. I agree. Yeah. So she like is a catalyst, but she's not, she's like a catalyst who doesn't get used up or change like in a science way. Right. And I, and the funny thing is that toward the end of the book, she was starting to have that perfect day, that nearly perfect day where she was making things better for lots of people, giving her parents a good morning, uh, setting Colton on the road to being with the right girl for him, um, helping out Tom, who turns out, of course, to be her, you know, the right guy for her, helping Tom's grandmother and other people and helping the goths and setting up all the right people and so forth. And she's very close to having that perfect day. And then I was completely surprised by the end of the book because, big spoiler, at the end of the book, the last day, she goes to school. And what does she do, Lissa? Oh, I have the quote right here. Okay. Or one quote from it that I saved when I was reading it. Um, And this is, I read the ebook of it, and this is like page 544 of 570. So if you do the proportion math, it's really close to the end. She goes and tells everybody the truth that she has learned about them. And the sentence I took the screenshot of was, my truth bombs continue getting less explosive until they're barely truth grenades, which gradually in turn become truth suggestions. But she goes around and kind of tells everybody tells what everybody. she sees and thinks and manipulates them a little and right. but she, draws but them but out. But she's also kind of like telling people off. Yeah. Like the trouble with you is that you need to blah, 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 blah. And I was like, and she mentions that she's probably going to be disliked by everybody in the school for this entire year because she went and told everybody off, even though maybe it's for their own good. I don't know. But I was like, I don't know that growing from 
a relatively reserved or shy person who's uncertain into somebody who just goes in there and tells everybody exactly what you think about them right now is maybe a good thing. So, and it's like a whole extra book that's about to happen after the end of this book. Her yeah. day two at this school, because the further down the same page, it said, the whispering murmurs behind my back make me glad that nobody will remember me tomorrow. But there's one person who doesn't seem to mind all my blatant honesty. So, I mean, this is where it starts to really become a romance novel again. Like, you yes. are your true self and expressive to the one person who will like you back. And you've totally isolated and alienated yourself from every other person <laughs> in your high school. <laughs> and now you've got the rest of the year to finally live. I mean, she's going to have to grow and change. But I'm not sure she did it till day two. Maybe. Although I have never read a book by Laurie Boyle Comp Crompton before. And I looked up and this is her fourth novel. And none of them has a sequel. So she doesn't seem to write series books. Do you suppose she's going to write? day two of this? No, I think it just happens. I read Blaze when it came out in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, um, I actually did review it on Goodreads mm-hmm. um, and gave it four stars. And um, I read it because Blaze was a geek girl artist. And um, she uh, meets a comic book store guy. And she has a crush on what's clearly the wrong person, which of course turns out to be the right person, but way later. Um, she, it was really like cringe worthy. A lot of her experiences, like she makes a lot of mistakes. Um, there's a lot of fart jokes in that book because it's about her and her younger brother and how she has to spend so much time driving him around to soccer games. Um, but I thought, I, I thought it was well handled and interesting, um, because it all seemed so real. It wasn't super sugarcoated. She messed up a lot. Um, I don't know. I liked it. It has a wonderful subtitle, Love in the Time of Supervillains, which when I saw that subtitle, I'm like, man, I wish I'd written a book with that title. That title is awesome. It's true. It is an awesome title. And the cover is awesome. It's got like hot pink hair with mm-hmm. like, it's it's pretty awesome. There you go. Excellent. So do you think you'll read Laurie Broyle Compton's next book when it comes out? Um, I think I will. I think it will depend. For me, a lot of YA romance and a lot of YA books depend on, like, what the other tropes are. Um, So, like, for this, for Blaze, like, oh, love in the time of supervillains. Oh, comic book artist and, you know, those kinds of things that I wanted to read more about. Or in this case, the mashup I was interested in. So, for me, it will very much depend on what other... um, what other elements she pulls into the romance because in a romance, like it's going to kind of turn out. Okay. And you already know that going in. So it's what the subplot is and what you're going to learn about, about the world and what kind of stuff the characters are going to talk about. That's how I pick. I, I think that's probably a good idea. I think that's what, you know, drew me to this book is that the premise sounded so charming to me that I thought, oh, I'll do that. And of course, it's the dead of winter and really, really cold and it snowed a lot. And it was nice to read a book that was frothier than average for me. And I worked really hard to finish it before Groundhog's Day because it felt like, um, you know, a holiday book. Yeah, there you go. I've not celebrated Groundhog's Day before particularly, but I felt like reading this book was a good way to celebrate Groundhog's Day. Yeah. Well, if it keeps snowing like this, I'm not going to celebrate Groundhog's Day next year. I'll tell you that. So he uh, did you may not... just still be celebrating. 
Maybe have roast groundhog for dinner that day or, or just an effigy like made out of tofu or something uh, to teach that rat a lesson about uh, predicting early spring and then having it snow on me forever. And ever. And not that I'm bitter, but I'm bitter. No. No. It's like extra indoor reading time, sort of. <laughs> you know, I've been looking at it that way, and I have to tell you, I'm killing it on my reading goal this year. I think I've read 21 books in 2019, wow. and that is an insanely large total for this time of year for me. Soon your garden will take back over. Soon my garden will take back over. I was, I said, it's sunny today, and not, and it is above freezing, and I've been like. I wonder if it's too soon to plant radishes yet. I don't know. I tried to, um, I started some stuff in my basement already. And then I tried to go put stuff in a planter outside. And I didn't really think that through. And the dirt was frozen in the planter. And I couldn't <laughs> dig into it. Oops. So I have some very nice pansies on my kitchen counter, sitting in the sunshine of my kitchen counter. Yeah, maybe you should go back out and buy a bag of dirt and just add in fresh dirt for your pansies. You're such an enabler. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, somebody's got to enable you. So I'm willing to to step in there for you. This is what good friends do. Uh, find each other books, enable their gardening, uh, bad habits, good habits, whatever. So did you, um, did you think, I know that you have taught in schools, worked in schools. Did you think that this had the right school feel to it? You know, the interesting thing is that I have two teenage children who are high schoolers, and I asked them because the click groups in this book felt to me like 1980s click groups. You know, yeah. it has all these references to 1980s movies and kind of throwback to 1980s things, and it felt like a 1980s movie to me. Uh, like I said, I have seen The Breakfast Club, and it has kind of a member of each of the groups that you see in this book. So I asked my kids, like, is your high school like this? Is it real clicky? And I wish I had a positive response from them for you about that. But mostly they just kind of looked at me, that kind of foggy look like they don't know what I'm talking about, which is not unusual uh, in our <laughs> conversations. But they're like, uh, maybe. I'm like, so do you have like goths in your school? And they're like, maybe so they didn't seem real positive about it so maybe the truth is that high school students have shifted a little bit or that people aren't in the same stereotypical groups that they used to be I worked in a high school until a year and a half ago and it did have specific groupings in it and people did tend to sort themselves out into units and sometimes those units were similar to these, like there is always that group of jocks. But weirdly, I think with the advent of social media, with texting, these people tend to text and message each other a lot. Even if they're sitting at the same table, they'll be messaging each other a lot. So maybe that has caused the fault lines in a social strata to break differently. Or at least appear differently. Or at least appear differently. Yeah. It made me think when I was trying to um, think about, because I haven't been in a high school recently, um, 
maybe we need to actually go look for movies about high school being made now. <laughs> Since I don't know that The Breakfast oh, Club and Pretty in Pink were reflective of high school of, in the of 1980s. Of actual high school? Right, because that was whoever was making those movies' view of high school. High school. So maybe that's like 1950s high school. Possibly. I don't know. Explains <gasps> a lot about the fashion. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. So I don't know. It's like sometimes books, you can't necessarily in a book reflect the totality of a situation. Like when you give a description of a room, you're just picking out a few important objects in that room to detail in a description rather than every object in the room. So maybe that's how it is with groupings of people too. You need to pin some sort of characteristic on each group to make it understandable to the reader. I mean, you even get that in like the Iliad, all the people are, you always have um, green-eyed Athena coming in to remember, oh yeah, it's that smart goddess again. So maybe that's why in books and movies you get like pin identifiers on people to make it easier for people to parse things. I think so. And then I think also authors fill in or the reader fills in the rest of the details with whatever memories or worldviews or opinions they have. Right. Um, so if you say the goth, then I fill in images of my own high school experience. I don't fill in whatever she's actually referencing. Um, so I think that in this book, it's particularly interesting then because she needs to very quickly stereotype a whole lot of different cliques so that right. we can all imagine it. And then break down some of those stereotypes through her main character, Andy, so that we see those people actually are their own unique stereotype defined people. So I have one more question about this book, and it's an opinion question. Okay. Why? What is it that causes her? What magic is it that causes her to live this day over and over again? Is it in the form of a physical object, or is it just whoever knows? But there's two physical objects of magic in this book, and one is this pink vintage dress that her mother buys and tells her to wear on the first day of school, like pretty and pink. And a second one is that this hideous leather sofa that her mother gets at the thrift store, which is also pink. And she falls, she wakes up every morning lying on this sofa. So is it is one of those a magic object? Or are we just never supposed to know why? What force in the universe is causing her to have to relive this. And doesn't she wake up in Pretty in Pink as playing on repeat every morning? Ah, that's soon? true. That's magical object number three, the DVD. But, you know, she, yes, every morning it's playing the, still playing the music and the menu over and over and over again. And she does like the break the screen. disc one day, but when she breaks up, wakes up the next morning, it's whole again and playing again. So no matter where she goes or what she does, she always wakes up with that playing. So, so if this was going to be transferable, then it's the Pretty in Pink DVD, and you should never fall asleep watching Pretty in Pink, because <laughs> this could happen to you. But There's in a YA romance, yeah. right? Like, it's probably not secretly threatening us with a horror movie. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It's like that combination. Yeah, like the couch coming in definitely changed things, because she'd watched plenty of movies with her mom before and not got stuck in Groundhog's Day. Right. So I don't so, know. Yeah, like some I said, this is something I don't know about the the tropes in YA contemporary romance. I I read a lot of books that have magical or magical realist elements in it, so I'm willing to believe that a 
magical or cursed DVD or dress or sofa could cause you to need to reach nirvana before you can move forward. But I don't know if that's like a normal thing in these sorts of books. No. I was so glad that I had, I don't remember if you told me or if I just read the description first, like that I knew it was coming, that it was going to be like this, because that is the kind of book where I pick it up and I start reading and then some not real thing happens and I am done. I mean, like, I would like my YA fantasy to be the fact that everyone can be happily ever after. I don't need additional fantasy involved. So happiness is enough for you. That's enough of a fantasy to try to buy into. Like, they're going to work it out in 200 pages. Like, that is the fantasy I'm there for. You had sent me uh, to look at an article in The New Yorker called Extra Life, which was a review of a Netflix series called Russian Doll, which has a similar plot line where the main character, it's her birthday and she's at her birthday party and she leaves that and ends up getting hit by a car or a bus or something and dies. But she wakes up at her birthday party in in a bathroom looking in a mirror over and over and over again. And it's the same concept of reliving until you get it right or what changes do you need to do or what how does your soul need to change or grow and do you have netflix no okay i do because another thing people should know is that lissa doesn't really watch television very much or anything or anything i don't watch any network television so i'm totally lame at all of that stuff but i do love movies in particular And I do watch some Netflix. So I actually turned this series on, on Netflix, and watched it for a few minutes. So I would have some reference for it. And I will say that I don't think it's the show for me, not through any flaw in it, but just because it's just not my bag. It's very sweary and hard, a bitten uh, series. Probably everyone in New York just loves it because it's clearly a very New York show. But it has this hyper, gritty, um, almost noir reality to it. And I did not get, I just watched it for a few minutes, to the point where she dies and is reborn. But it has that magical element in it, too, of the the constant rebirth uh, as well. But much grittier than a YA romance. Really gritty. Because she, like, dies every day. Yes, she does die every day. And her life is 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 wow gritty as well which i'm sure it's a wonderful tv show but not necessarily the right one for me uh as well because i just you know that's not my bag either but i can see why other people would like it if they like that sort of noirish or like i said it's a very it has new york jokes in it that i didn't get because i don't live in new york but i understood that they were clearly new york jokes that new york people would understand so. Unlike this book, which had Groundhog's Day and Pretty in Pink jokes. <laughs> That's right. In which I did have to go do research to understand some of the references to things in this book, too. So that I would know what in the heck is going on, because I have just have holes in my education, you know. We all do. We all just do. depends on where you're reading and whether or not that writer has worked it in well enough that you can kind of go with it. I, I will say that I did... Uh, do due diligence and try to find the 1980s movies to watch to, you know, to go with this book and make me understand it better and and get max enjoyment out of it maybe by having knowing knowing all the things. But none of them were 
really available that I had not seen previously on any of the many, many streaming services I have available to me here. Well, I will just say your public library. <laughs> you know, I can't I can't loan them to you because I don't think I own them. I, I don't. I did put some things on hold at my public library, but I will say and I will admit and I know you'll be shocked that I have not figured out whether this public library has Hoopla or any of the other uh, download and stream multimedia services. It's like a whole new world of access to things. It is. Like, Isn't it amazing? You want a thing, and so then you check 75 places to see if it will help you access <laughs> the thing. Um, I just double-checked. I really like the 80s teen romance movie, Some Kind of Wonderful, but um, it is, in fact, not a John Hughes film. It Isn't is it really? I no, always assumed not. it was. I know. I just looked it up real quick to make sure, but that one I have and can loan to you if you would like to rewatch it. I will I will do my best to. I will say that we just watched Die Hard, which is another classic 80s movie. Christmas film. It's a Christmas film because I was trying to explain to my son why it might be a Christmas film because he asked me and we don't own it. So I put it on hold at the library on both DVD and Blu-ray and they finally came in like two weeks ago, which I thought was They're hysterical. Still working through their list from Christmas. From Christmas. Everybody went and put it on hold for Christmas, which is hysterical. Um <laughs> But yeah, so he enjoyed it very much and is is happy to watch the next Die Hard movie. I told him that's not a Christmas movie, I don't think. No, I don't think so. All right, Marion, sometimes uh, we have a book club called Reading for Writers, where we get together and, and read books, but talk about them from the perspective of writers. And I think no matter what we do on this podcast, we'll accidentally be doing that because we, or I'm, you know, intentionally be doing it because we are writers and we're reading and we're thinking about how did the writer do that, make us feel that, make us see that, all of those things. Um, so for Pretty and Puxatani, um, were there particular writerly moments that you that you saw in that? Did it give you ideas for your own writing? Ooh, um, you know, when I'm reading books anymore, and I, I don't know whether this is a sad thing or not, but anymore... When it, regardless of what book I'm reading, I'm looking at its structure and how it's put together all the time to see how is this person doing this? How are they relating this to that? And I would say that Priyam Punxsutawney, one thing that she did really well structurally is that it could have become what's called a string of pearls, a, a book that has one event after another, each of which is interesting in and of itself, but they don't necessarily go anywhere or build. And that could really easily have happened with a book where you live the same day over and over and over again. But I think she did a good job of building tension and forward motion into that toward what really worked well. I didn't like the the end, but the end worked well as a climax to that and kind of a denouement, as they say, afterwards of what's going to happen next. That's very short. The climax of the book is very close to the end of it. There's not a lot of, of afterwards, a precipitous cliff. Uh, that was my thought on this book, too, and especially about the end. Like, as a reader, that is not what I wanted. For the character, when I was rooting for the character, that's not what I wanted. Reading for happy endings, that's not what I wanted. But when I thought about it from the perspective of writing... 
I was like, oh, I don't I don't see a better way to end it. Like, this is still the right way to end this, even though as a reader, it's not what I wanted. I really wanted it to end with, you know, they go to see Tom's grandmother and everybody's happy and they're all dancing at the end is what I wanted. Since the movie ends with a dance and a kiss, I wanted this book to end with a dance and a kiss. But but I can see. Yeah. Yeah. It works as structurally. But in the movie, she also I mean, like. Andy in Pretty in Pink ends up with the wrong guy. She right? does end like, up with the wrong guy. And at least she ended up with the right guy this time. Trade-offs. <laughs> so what else have you been learning about writing lately? Well, uh, as I said, I've read 21 books this year and so far, and several of them have been craft books. I'm supposed to be revising a big, long novel of mine. And I've been kind of getting fixing to get ready, as they say to do that. But I did recently go to a class here. And for listeners, you should note that although Lisa and I used to live in the same town, we no longer do. I live about an hour and a half away. So we have different library systems and different programs that we go to. And I went to a uh, series of three classes that lasted all day that were about screenwriting. And I'm just looking for my notes on that here. But I went, this classes were given by Nicole Millard, who is a really charming and personable person, I gotta say. Uh, one of those people who's adorable. But she is clearly a really excellent screenwriter and has some good chops on, on how to do that. And she currently is, uh, she started out, she was a lawyer. And her, she has a writing partner and her writing partner maybe was a lawyer as well. But when they were very young, shortly after law school, she gave up being a lawyer and they both moved out to L.A. because they wanted to write movies. And I think that is extraordinary to, to have the, the guts to pack it all in and move to California and try something new. I um, admire it and it terrifies me to do that. Both. I got this, yes, the, the admiring and the terrifying. But they worked up through the system out there very hard and did become movie writers, including uh, they wrote The Game Plan, which was uh, a comedy with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson in it, uh, which is a sports movie and kind of a feel-good family movie for Disney. But these days she writes television, only television. And... She had come into town because she and her writing partner had written and I think were showrunners for a limited series called Guilt. And she's also a staff writer for the show Bull. And as we know, neither Marion nor Lissa watches television, so I have not seen either one of those shows, but I'm willing to believe that they are, are lovely. But she had a lot to say about how to structurally write a screenplay, how long they are, how they are made, how she makes them what should be happening at specific page points in a script and um, what your chances are of actually becoming a screenwriter if you had an urge to do, which thankfully I don't have an urge to be a screenwriter. Because, Does that mean the chances are not good? Well, it, it was interesting uh, because there were a lot of people in the room who are interested in screenwriting. And the the takeaway that I came away with is that if you want to be a movie screenwriter, you really need to move to L.A. And if you want to write for television, you really need to live in L.A. 
or New York. And that is all. Like, if you live in Chicago, Chicago is a great town, but it's not the right town to become a screenwriter in. So I felt bad, I guess, for all the people who were sitting in the room that this is your dream. And it's just the chances are really low anyway. And they're really, really low unless you are willing to give it everything and pick up sticks and move to L.A. and work your way up. But her advice on writing screenplays, both for television, I guess and definitely for movies, really closely followed the book Save the Cat. Which have you ever read that book? I... I think I have just read other people's notes about it. Okay. I've read that book before, and it was used by you know, fiction writers for a long time to put in place what are called fiction beats to make sure all the appropriate things happen in your story to make it satisfying, and that they happen pretty much in the right order and pretty much at the right time to make the overall story satisfactory to the reader. And... I will say that before I read Save the Cat, when I after I read it, I went back and looked at things I'd already written, and I was doing those things anyway. So maybe they're just instinctive. For you. For me, and maybe for lots of other people. I don't know, but there's certainly... And when I went back and looked at works I'd done, I'm like, oh yeah, I have all those beats there, and they're pretty much in the right place. But I did find it useful as a tool. Now what I do is I go back after I've written something and say, are all these things in this? Or not, because if something's missing, I need to go back and revise. Uh, and recently, there's been a new, the Save the Cat came out as a book, and it spawned a series of books, and the person who wrote those books uh, is no longer around. But there's a brand new Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which I recently did read, I think last month, and I found it to be better than the original, uh, specifically for novel writers, and it has an interesting section on uh, what genre you're writing in. And it's not like romance or action. It's like dude with a problem books or Ooh. golden fleece books and stuff. And I, that made so much more sense to me in terms of what kind of book am I writing rather than saying, oh, I write fantasy books. Well, fantasy books might be a golden fleece book. It might be a road trip book. It might be a buddy love movie, you know, or buddy love book, who knows? So I thought that was really super interesting. But I was interested in how much Nicole Millard's professional advice on how to write fell into the same parameters as that book. So if you are interested in screenwriting and you can't go see her talk for four or five hours to teach you all the things, as a fallback, you could read Save the Cat and understand the basics of storytelling in a visual format. Um, or if you read Save the Cat Writes a Novel, storytelling in a novel and how to put a novel together and make it cohesive in a way that um, that works. And in the Save the Cat Writes a Novel, she talks a lot about one thing that really struck me was she talks about the promise of the premise that a book, if it makes a promise to you about how it's going to be, you expect the book to be like that. Like Pretty and Punxsutawney, you expect this to have a happy ending. You expect there to be a love story and it's going to end happily or else. And if it and if it didn't, if Andy ended up in a mental institution broken and alone, that would not be a satisfactory book to you. Right. And it was okay that partway through that was her fear. Yeah. Because yeah. for what she was going through, that was a legit fear. Sure. Um, and also that, that whole idea of like sneaking in that genre crossover stuff in a way that your reader can go with. 
Like, as long as you say this is a Groundhog Day, you know, reference Groundhog Day on the cover or the back of your book, then I can go with it when she wakes up and the day repeats. Right. But if that's a surprise. Yes. Yes. You know, so like and what what can you cross over where your reader will take that leap with you and trust you? Right. I've read a couple books lately that did not fulfill on that promise. And if we, if we uh, choose to talk about what we've been reading lately at some point in this podcast, I'll tell you which books those were that... I felt let down by uh, the promise of the premise not being fulfilled in a way that was satisfactory for me. Well, we will clearly have to talk about that because <laughs> now I want to hear it. No, you want to hear it. But you've been to uh, some, uh, here's some people and learn some stuff yourself. <gasps> yes. I um, went out in a snowstorm to hear Robin Sloan speak <sighs> in Lawrence, and it was fabulous. Um, and Robin Sloan is the author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore and the author of Sourdough. And um, I love his writing, and I love his perspective, and he's very witty, and in person, he's also very witty. Um, he's super geeky and um, smart and ties things together and um, changed because we were there in a snowstorm, and it was not a huge crowd. Um, I think the area got about four inches of snow that morning of his talk. Um, he decided on the fly to tailor his talk to people who were like tried and true fans because he figured nobody else was there. <laughs> um, and it, so it was fabulous because then it was like all a little more insider. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about this was so I could tell Marion about the thing I'm going to mail her as a care package. It's just very exciting. Um, Yes. Um, this year, uh, Robin Sloan is doing a series of like newsletters. Um, and on the front, it says treasured subscribers. I have not opened this yet, and I'm not going to open it. Um, but he invested in a risograph, which is kind of like a mimeograph, but like can do colors. And, um, and he's printing his own newsletter and sending it out to people. And so he had copies of the current issue of his newsletter like an um, old school real news paper yes. newsletter kind, that is kind amazing. of like a cross between that and a zine and like a church bulletin and all the things you and know, i'm so excited that kind that sounds awesome and i'm gonna look forward to it by the way but the, it works really well with sourdough as a book which is is about handmade things or yes choosing how you use technology and the value of the individual way of making something. It's exactly like that. Yeah. And, you know, I myself right now downstairs, my sourdough is uh, bubbling away on the counter uh, with the millions of bacteria fighting each other. And I've had sourdough starter ever since I read his book. Uh, and I taught myself to bake sourdough bread from scratch. This is the because, power of fiction writers. <laughs> it is the power of fiction writers. It's like, I, I, it, I had to go to the store in the middle of reading Robin Sloan's Sourdough and buy a loaf of artisanal sourdough bread so that I could sit and eat it while I read that book because I couldn't not. It was making me crazed. I um, made sourdough bread yesterday. And I just this moment realized I had a friend to lunch and forgot to share any of the bread. And I'm not like super <laughs> sorry, actually. <laughs> It wasn't like perfect. It was like an early experiment for me, yeah. Um, which I think is reflected in the book Sourdough. Like it your is. early experiments are learning projects. Are learning projects. Um, but also now I'm kind of hungry thinking about it because it's on my counter. Oh, there's always more. You can make more next week. So 
So. Right. Sourdough baking and writing and reading, like they're all they're all experiments. They are all experiments. All right. I want you to deliver on this promise to tell me about the books you're reading and how they did not deliver on their premise. Well, some of them have been delivering on their premise, but two books that I read lately uh, that I that didn't deliver for me, and it says not to ding them or harass the lovely writers of them and had many fine qualities, but two of them were, one was Fox, and I can't remember who wrote Fox. I'll have to look it up while we talk here, um, which was, it is a historical fantasy that revolves around the gunpowder plot to blow up parliament in England. And it is um, takes a lot from the regulation history and retells it, except it's in a world where there's magic. Okay, it's by, oh darn it, go away you. It is by um, Nadine Brandes. And it's a beautiful looking book. I fell for the cover hard, speaking of good looking books. But it has Mm -hmm. this world of magic where people have color magic and can um, do magical things. And the main character can't because reasons why I won't tell you why. And there's also a plague that's going around. So I was promised gunpowder plot with magic, right? That's And and plague. And plague. But mostly the gunpowder plot and magic. This is what I was promised. And I love history and I love books with magic. So I was like, yes. And I was disappointed in it because it wasn't the book that I was expecting, as you were talking about earlier. There, because the main character can't do magic for most of the book, and even when he can do magic, he doesn't do it a lot. There's much less magic in it than you'd expect. And the actual plotting part, the plotting to blow up Parliament part, does not take up a lot of room in the book either. It's really a relationship book, a relationship between the main character and his father and a a love interest that he has. And so there's a big romance um, super plot in it. And 80 or 90% of the book is taken up by those relationship issues. And I wanted a heist novel is what I wanted. You know, I wanted to blow stuff up and have plotters and so I listened to it on audio. It was a perfectly good audiobook, but I found myself turning up the speed on the audiobook a little bit, one and a quarter, one and a half, because I wanted to finish it. I was interested enough to stay to the end and find out, you know, who lives, who dies, uh, what happens to the main character. But it wasn't delivering on the premise that I was expecting. And the other That's one... hard. <laughs> what is a harsh review or just... just no, I said that's hard. To, it's to, hard to not when you're like letter. expecting something. Yeah. yeah. And the other one is a book that I know that you've read, which was Fire and Heist. <gasps> yes. Um, and Fire and Heist is another one. Maybe, call me crazy for judging these books by their covers, but I fell victim to the cover, which is like a red and gold cover. It has dragons on it. And it's supposed to be... Ocean's Eleven with dragons, right? Which I would read. Which I would read too. And I'm and another heist novel. I was promised a heist here. And it's a very masculine cover, I think. Uh, my 17, it looks tough. It looks tough. My 17-year-old son who loves adventure books for boys saw that book. He's like, oh, mom, I want to read this book. And after I read it, I was like, I just don't think it's for you. Because once again, does it have heists in it? 
Yeah. It uses the word heist a lot. It uses the word heist a lot. And it does it have dragons in it? Yeah, it does. But it's mostly a relationship book. Um, The main character's mother is missing. She's trying to connect with her father and her brother. She's got a boyfriend problems. And almost the entirety of the book is concentrating around those problems rather than the heist. The actual, I was surprised in that book. I don't know if you were, that the, the, the first heist, there's hardly any planning for it. They don't discuss its planning a lot. And the actual amount of space taken up by the heist itself is very small. And then it was like a trick at the end. And then there's, yeah, a complete shift in the book, uh, which I felt like it was a different book almost. Like it was two different books that I was reading. Yes, very much. Because then I was like, oh, it does have dragons on the front. But I just like was not ready for that stuff. Yeah, because at the beginning of the book, the the dragons aren't very dragony. I guess the, the main character is a wyvern, but she looks like and acts like an average teenage girl, I guess. I yeah. loved the term wear dragon. Like I did love that. <laughs> yeah, wear dragon. It's like maybe, well, maybe is there an Amazon romance category for that? Wear dragons? Do you suppose? Let's not search. Let's for not it. search for it. Let's not. We're happier that way. But yeah, so I thought that was promised. Oceans and Eleven with dragons, and I wanted Oceans Eleven with dragons. And it's hard to forgive a book and to meet it on its own merits, and say oh this book is this aspect of this book this relationship is is well written or uh, entertaining or draws me in as a reader and all the things that you want from a book when you're busy thinking wait a minute here I was promised something else and I'm not getting it the weirdest thing for me in fire and heist because I went into it a little like wary because you'd warned me off because of the mother issues right but i went into it anyway because i like really wanted a high story still here's the thing that made me like realize that it had not delivered on whatever i imagined when she like and this is a huge spoiler like ends up with her boyfriend and he really loves her and she really (laughs) loves him back i was like disappointed and disgusted because because i'd been rooting for some sort of like i mean it's not even like i had a different person picked out for her I just did not care like to me that was not a book that should have been a romance novel and there should have been more killing and there should have been more stealing and yes 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 more killing more stealing less romance and the funny thing is it's not even not even a surprise that she ends up with him I was surprised were you really because I was so disappointed by it like why was that the right outcome well, it isn't the right outcome. I mean, he, as long as we're doing spoilers, he has dumped her in front of everybody before the yeah. book starts, like left her high and dry. And I didn't feel like she was mad enough at him for that. She's always trying to say, well, you know, maybe he had to, or maybe he's feeling these social pressures or whatever. I'm like, girl, he dumped you in front of everybody. And it's going to take a lot of rethinking before you are willing to forgive that and I didn't feel like he suffered enough and she shouldn't have forgiven him she should have dumped him no because that was more than just like dumping that was like outcast her family ruined her family's finances and life and social standing like that was bigger than dumping and the author made a big deal about it being bigger than dumping yeah yeah so like I said it just 
I had a tough time accepting its many excellent qualities because it did not deliver for me on what it's supposed to be. And it, it is a book that on its cover promises that it's Ocean's Eleven with wyverns, I think. Yeah. And I mean, that, was, uh, that is the big write-up it for clear. it. That's its tagline. It's as if Pretty and Punxsutawney had not had 80s movies references in it. Yes. You know, or she didn't have to live the same day over and over and over again. That's, that is the tagline, you know, Pretty and exactly. Pink meets Groundhog Day. This was Ocean's Eleven with dragons and I didn't get it. So it was sad. It is. Um, I, um, for a book club I'm in, just reread the W.P. Kinsella book, Shoeless Joe. And maybe it's because this has been the longest winter ever. And I like am so ready for anything that sounds like spring, like flowers, baseball. It does not matter. Anything that sounds like spring I want right now. Um, but it was all about writers. I mean, it's a well-told story and it's about baseball and it's different than the movie version if you've never read it. I, I have never read it. Well, James Earl Jones is not a character in it. Right. J.D. So Salinger is a character in it, right? J.D. Salinger is the character in it. And it's pretty amazing. Um but the whole thing, while you're, while I was reading it, the whole time I was very conscious that it was like written by somebody who went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and was immersed in being a wonderful fiction writer and then tried to write other characters who weren't fiction writers, but maybe could have been. Like, <laughs> that's, and I say all of that with love. With love. Because like, I loved reading it because of those things. Um, so at one point, the main character, um, who's named Ray Kinsella, um, is um, talking about his wife, Annie. And she says, he says, Annie is a spectator, not a fan, like a reader who reads a whole book without caring who wrote it. She watches, enjoys, forgets, and doesn't read the box scores and standings in the morning paper. So like, it's like somebody trying to write a baseball book, but they make reading and writing metaphors to explain baseball. It's because, of course, reading and writing are metaphors for everything, Lissa. Of course, baseball is a metaphor for everything, too. So I know. And this book is amazing <laughs> because of that. Like, well, if you're going to, like, talk about fiction writing and reading books to explain your baseball metaphor, like, that's a thing of beauty for me. It's got the whole package. Well, I did just finish my latest audiobook, so I, maybe I can try Shoeless Joe next try it because it's still really cold out and opening day is in like 19 days so, so close yeah um i'm trying to think the other thing i've been reading is the city in the middle of the night by charlie jane anders yeah. and i love it and it's so it's like science fiction it's a tidally locked planet um it's about uh people who live in this very um segmented society um, they populated this world that they're on from a mothership and everything ties back to what essentially is race and class and ethnicity but they describe it differently because it has to do with what your part of the world contributed to the mothership and then what happened huh. on the mothership and then what happened when you got to this planet it's really interesting um, and it's so intense and so well written that I can only read like 10 to 15 pages a day. <laughs> so my library book is like starting to be overdue today. And I went ahead and bought it. And because um, I'm going to have to return my library book because I'm going to try to get everybody to read it. Um, but like my favorite thing about it is it's very much a relationship book. It's very much about 
the characters and the people and their relationship to each other. And, um, and like, there's a lot of snuggling. It's a snuggling book. Like the people travel, um, and have like, I forgot the word for it, like sleep buddies or something, but they basically sleep in shifts so that they can protect their traveling caravan. Um, and so whoever it is that you bunk with, like you have a more personal relationship with because you are awake at the same times and then you sleep next to each other. And anyway, the whole book is super like interesting. Really, really good. Oh, I'll really try that. I am, I read, and I know you do too, in several different formats at the same time. So yes. I almost always have an audiobook and a paper book and often an ebook, and these days a serial on the go at the same time. So I just finished today my audiobook of Fools and Mortals by Bernard Cornwell, who usually writes big um, historical novels with lots of fighting. That's what I just imagined. Yeah, but it it doesn't have any of that, Lisa. It is, it is a book about the theater. It is a it is a book narrated by William Shakespeare's younger brother Richard, who is an actor, and the real Richard Shakespeare was an actor. And it's about the first production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. I really did (laughs) on audio. It was beautifully done on audio, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, immensely and it's so it's like historical fiction yes it is historical fiction and Bernard Cornwell is a specialist in historical fiction and he is really really good at giving you the feeling of a specific place at a specific time so mid-1590s London really comes alive in the details in the language in the book and it's super interesting although in many ways not a lot happens in it but I would recommend it. I thought it was a really terrific audiobook and very, like I said, very immersive and interesting if you are a Shakespeare freak in particular, which I think we both know that I am. You are. And on Serial, I am reading, I have the Serial Reader app, which delivers me 15 minutes of a book every morning at 5 a.m. when I wake up. And my current one is Pride and Prejudice, which I have never read. Oh and- my gosh. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. I'm in trouble for not reading Harry Potter. Whatever. But Harry Potter's Pride contemporary. I saw Pride Prejudice came out like 200 years ago. I know. Well, I'm catching up, okay? It's been on my TBR okay. for a while. Um, and it's super interesting to read it. I don't know that it's going to be my favorite book ever, uh, but it's been super interesting to see where all the famous quotes from Pride and Prejudice come from, and she is brilliant at conversation. Um. And of course, not each of the characters has a terrible flaw, which makes them hard to like sometimes for me, but they're getting better. So I was going to say fun to read, but they they are really fun to read, but they're so, so witty, you know, but that they can be cutting to each other. And many people in the book are cutting. Elizabeth Bennett's father is really cutting, but she does. She did finally acknowledge that he has some failings as a parent because of this. I'm like, well, thank you, Jane Austen. I appreciate that now. So I forgive everything. So I'm enjoying that. And the other one that I'm reading is The Name of the Star by Maureen Johnson, which I'm reading because someone recommended it to me as a comp for the book that I'm writing. Oh. So it has been interesting to read, but I'm having trouble reading it at night because it is about a girl from Louisiana who moves to London to go to boarding school. And 
like the ghost of Jack the Ripper has come back and is reenacting all of his murders. So sometimes it's a little tense for me to read right at bedtime. <laughs> I read a lot of Maureen Johnson when her books weren't scary. Are they... And then they got scary or suspenseful or, I don't know, modern and trendy, something. But like Sweet Scarlet is one of my favorite books. Oh, like, this, I love that book. This is my first of her books, although I have another one here, um, which sounded fun, Deviously Yours, I think it is, or Yours Deviously. I can't remember. Yeah, I didn't read that one yeah. either. You can I, tell from the name. It's brand new. So, but I'm I'm enjoying it. And it's a really interesting and entertaining book and quite funny in parts, but some of it is really tense, so... I have to uh, put it down and go look at sunshine for a minute before I come yeah. back. Um, the book I'm going to read after I finish The City in the Middle of the Night is called Ancestral Night. It's by Elizabeth Bear, who I've never read. Um, but somebody shared her post about her book on Twitter. And it was like a list of qualities or characteristics about this book. And at the end, it says something like... Um, if these are things you like, this is the book for you. And like, it was such a good list. I just went to Amazon and bought it. Like, right. Like I was just like standing in my house, checking Twitter. And then I was buying the book on Amazon wow. 30 seconds later. When yeah. marketing works. I'll tell you. I know. Right. <laughs> so like writers take note. If you're doing it right, your readers will buy your book immediately. Well, I will look forward to uh, hearing what you thought of it after you read the book and whether or not right. it lives up to that it's list of characteristics yeah it's like it's a major promises here so we'll see how that works out exactly well lissa i think we've been chatting for a while so we need to wrap up this episode of our podcast next time we're both going to try to read the gilded wolves by roshani chokshi which I'm personally excited about it is takes place in 1889 in Paris and there's magic and it's a very pretty book besides. So thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and of course your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com. <laughs>